Who are we? We are ushering in a new era of undiluted connection to the Father. We are the comeback generation. Where others have faltered, we will push farther. We are love perfectly balanced with truth. We are wisdom undiluted by youth. We are not cause-driven, we are Christ-driven. Undivided, calling forth hope, we are united. We are not deceived by the enemy's agenda. We know whose we are, we remember. We are a people created to light it up. We are the fires, we are the embers. The flames of our spirit will catch the wind of the gospel. And rush through this nation through cities of hostiles. And resurrect what was dead through his love. We get their attention until they look up. We are the houses and churches of Christ. Countering hate with compassionate lives. We are tried, tested, your tokens. Of a being whose love is never broken. We are the people who stay. With the lonely, the others betray. We are peacemakers, yet ready to fight. We're sons of the king, it's our right. To take back our kingdom and reign. We are warriors, princesses, and saints. We are who we are. We don't wonder. We don't doubt our inheritance. We ponder. The words of God who has called us. By his name we are known because he has bought us. We are the beginning of change, we won't give up. We will measure our words against his love. We're a body. Who he says we are, we become. We are light, we appear. We are custom. Well, what's up family, how's everyone doing? Got your coffee? You good? Got your snacks? The snack time. My name is John Holm. I am the student pastor here at Seacoast, and really my role is uh, I, I oversee all student ministry for all of our campuses and, and get to partner with each of our campuses and their student pastors, and it's just a, a, an honor, honor to get to do what I get to do. Um, student takeover, what does that mean? Some of you came here and you're like, I wanted to hear the main guy. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, you can take it up with him later. Um, but what it is, is all of our campuses, students are getting involved in serving and, and holding doors and just being a part of the body of Christ, being part of the church uh, whole collectively. One of my values for our student ministry is that we have generational influence. We want them to see and be a part of the generation, not just their own little mini church, but be part of the, the whole generation and that you would be able to influence them as well. So thank you for being with us. Have you... Uh, or any, anybody by, you don't have to show your hands because I don't wanna embarrass you, but I'll show my hands. Have you felt like technology has just like passed you by? <laughs> right? I don't slap chat. Um, I don't even know what that is anymore and all these students who are slap chatting or Snapchatting, whatever they call it. My VCR still blinks 12, all right? <laughs> so I'm no, no longer like relevant technology-wise. Um, but I wanna show you a picture just how fast technology is passing us by in 2018, if we were to pull up pictures of our grandparents and say, son, I found a picture of your grandfather, this is probably what a picture could look like, you know, similar, older picture. Uh, but in 2060, if we were to say, son, I found a picture of your grandfather, this is what it would look like. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a little sad, isn't it? <laughs> found a picture of your grandfather. What is that? 2060, wow, what would that even be like? Who knows? All right, I wanna add my two cents to the, uh, the legacy. This isn't a legacy continuation of the series. This is an independent message, but I just wanna add my two cents to the legacy series, and basically my two cents are this. Uh, there are two words missing from anyone with a legacy. Two words missing, safe and familiar. You'll never hear those words out of someone who has left a legacy, leaving a legacy, that they never played it safe, and they weren't comfortable with a familiar. 
They always launched out. And so this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna give us a guiding statement, a vision statement for our life. That when you feel like all is lost or lost control or I don't know what to do next, I don't know what my next step is or my, my child is just so out of control, I don't know how to rein them back in or, or my friend or my child or my family is so lost, I don't know what to do next. I wanna give us a guiding statement that brings us back to true north. And I'm gonna give that to you towards the end. It's found in the book of Nehemiah. My absolute favorite book of the Bible, one of my absolute favorite leaders, and, and the book of Nehemiah has, has helped me in many, in my church planting journey, in my student ministry journey. There's so many layers to this book, and I'm gonna try to just give you a few of those layers this morning. But I'm asking you a question, and I, I'm not gonna necessarily answer this question now. I'm hoping that you will come to an answer during this service. And the question I have for us is, what's the faith of the next generation worth? What's the faith of the next generation worth? And I'm not just talking monetarily. I'm not just talking financially. So much more than, than that. You see, uh, I do a retreat for all of our campus staff and their spouses and who work in student ministries. And does anybody know what this shovel is? Etul child, a trench shovel. I. Uh, I wrote a letter to all of our staff and their spouses at this retreat, I do it every year, every October. And uh, in the letter, I, I just kind of explained that we win in the trenches. And we were called to be in the trench. And I gave them all a, one of those little, little trench shovels and, and uh, with a, a label that says we win in the trench. And in World War I, thousands of miles, the, the war was fought through thousands of miles of, of trenches. Trench warfare was a type of combat where opposing armies fought from trenches facing each other. And the land that was in between both trenches, does anybody know what that, that area was called? No man's land. Do you know that there is no man's land happening right now in our culture? That we, we see people just walking who are encountering enemy fire and attacks of the enemy and, and just not sure what to do or where to turn or what to do next or where to go and they don't know how to turn to God and then they're walking into this no man's land and the enemy fire and the destruction is so chaotic. And no one wanted to enter into no man's land for fear of death, for fear of injury, for fear of destruction. And trench warfare brought with it um, a lot of challenges. The work was hard. The victories were slow and the casualties were high. Does that sound like parenting at all or life? <laughs> Rain would make the trenches just a muddy mess. Animals and rodents would infest and contaminate and disease was extremely common. The smell was horrible, a lot like a middle school boy. <laughs> Listen, I'm not calling you out middle school boys, I have one. And I can always tell if he's been outside because there's just this trail of a smell going through the house. I hope he's not in here yet. Okay, good. Evaded that one. Lack of focus and boredom in the trench proved deadly, leaving oneself open to enemy fire. Trench life was not glamorous. There was no glamour to that life, yet not leaving your post was crucial in the battle and was crucial for victory. Which brings us to today. We must never forget that we are still in a fight. There is still a battle waging. There is still a battle waging for you, for your heart, for your family's heart, for your kid's heart, for this generation's heart, for their lives. 
And some days the work is hard, the victories are slow, and the casualties are high, and some days when it rains, it pours. Some days the days just stink. And for some of us, our focus is off, which leaves us exposed to the attacks of the enemy. Yet not leaving your post is crucial to this battle, is crucial to victory. When you said yes to Jesus, <clears throat> knowingly or unknowingly, you said yes to trench life. You said yes to the trenches. In the book of Nehemiah, <clears throat> which I mentioned earlier, is one of my favorite books, and it's kind of a journal of a man who said yes to the trench. Well, really, he said yes to a wall. And just to give you some context, at Jerusalem, Nehemiah's city was in ruins. And it, it, the collapse of it um, from Babylon, uh, there, there were kind of three stages. In the first stage, they took all the young nobility. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel and his boys, they were one of those nobles who were taken in the first attack. And in the second attack, the second stage, there were 11,000 exiles. And in the third, the rest of Judah, Jerusalem, except for Jeremiah and the poorest of the poor were left into exile. And then after Babylonian Empire uh, seceded to the Persian Empire, um, the exiles were allowed to enter back into Jerusalem. And so the, res the restoration of Jerusalem had another three stages. The first stage, uh, Zerubbabel took a, a bunch of exiles. Says, and isn't that a great name, Zerubbabel? If you're pregnant in the house this morning, I would just ask that that be a name on your list for your child, you know, Zerub, what's up? How you doing? Yep, all right, anyway. Three stages, Zerubbabel will bring some exiles back and then restore the temple, knowing that God needs to be in first place. And Ezra is the second stage coming back and what they're doing is restoring spirituality, the spiritual and the moral, um, of the morality of, of the people. And stage three is where we find ourselves today in the book of Nehemiah. Upon learning that the remnant were in destruction, and, and there, here's the deal, Nehemiah never visited Jerusalem. He was one of the ones who just were born and raised into, or, or captured and raised into this society of the Babylonians, that he never visited his home city. But upon learning of the destruction, when he questioned some of the exiles, and they said, it's, it's in bad shape, it's in ruins, the doors are burned, things are just, it's, it's horrible. His heart began to break. You can see this in, in chapter one where he says this, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, sometimes it takes our heart breaking for it to awaken. It takes for our heart to break for it to come awake. Now I'm gonna give you my definition of a broken heart, and I'm not necessarily talking about relationships, a broken heart in a relationship. I'm talking about that, that passion, that burden, that vision that God gives you and, and God needs to give you and we need to have that drives us. It drives us, it's what wakes us up. It's that when I spoke last year, that icky guy, that thing that, that gives me purpose in living. I told you mine was the, to make hell regret, I said yes to Jesus. That's my drive, that's what drives me and here's my definition of a broken heart, a burden, a vision, a passion from God that motivates you and matters to someone else. You see, sin should break our hearts because sin breaks people. Sin should break our hearts. We should be broken by the sin we see, we encounter. We see the lost walking away and falling away. You know what? Satan has one agenda, is to keep the lost lost and the broken broken. And it should break our hearts because it breaks people. And today, today, 
the walls that once protected, a generation that once protected have been devalued and destroyed. And we can't ignore what's broken. If we ignore, we lose influence. If we ignore, we lose impact. If we ignore, we lose. And if you have a voice, then you have influence. And if you have influence, then you have responsibility. See, my burden story is uh, one where I think you know some of it, um, where we were here for a season, left and started a church, and then went through this, this series of where God was just stirring in my heart, I'm not done with you in the trench of student ministry. And so I went through a series of, of 21 days of fasting and praying, saying, God, you know, what are you doing? What, what, are you, what are you calling me to? What's going on? And I said, if, if you want me back in student ministries, I'd love to be back at Seacoast. <laughs> Minnesota, South Carolina. <laughs> there was a little bit of a selfish prayer to it. And my wife said, don't you dare call them and ask for a job. God needs to be in this. Three days after the 21 days was over, I get a phone call. And everything I asked God to do was done. Would you pray about it? I don't need to. I did 21 days of praying, bro. I'm good, you know. But what I wanna share with you is there were three days where we were moving our family back. My wife flew back with our baby and then our, our other two were in the minivan with her, her parents and I was in the riding truck where I felt like I was in a little semi-truck. I felt manly because I'm not very manly. Matter of fact, I'm an avid endorsement. <laughs> I've had a lot of the people want me to go on the hike and I'm like, you know what? I got a youth activity that day. Uh, I gotta wash my hair or cut it or do something. Um, now, I felt pretty manly driving this truck, but in that truck for three days was me and God, or God and I, if you're an English teacher, I don't, you can correct me later. And first day was me mourning, leaving the baby we just birthed, this church, for two and a half years. It was massive mourning, just weeping, just saying, you know, all right, God, I'm trusting I heard you in this one. And the second day was, God, break my heart for this church and for this generation. Break it. And it was just a, a, a full day of just crying out to God. And then the third day was planning and strategy to reach a generation. That's my story. And Nehemiah, his response was to take action, but his first action was prayer. His very first action was prayer. Matter of fact, all through the, the book of Nehemiah, 11 times or more than 11 times, prayer was his first response in things. He went to God quickly and first and, and all the time, and it was continual. And he spent about four months fasting and praying. Matter of fact, when they rebuilt the wall, it, was, it took them 52 days to rebuild the wall. He prayed longer than it took for them to finish the wall. I should say something. That should show something right there. And Nehemiah was not only paying attention, he was praying attention. And in prayer, it keeps the burden fresh in our life. It keeps us looking. Prayer keeps our eyes and hearts expectant. God, what are you wanting to do? Who are you wanting me to speak to? What are you doing in this situation? Prayer keeps us sensitive to subtle changes and shifts in culture. So when he moves, we move with him. When he speaks, we hear his voice. You have no idea what or who hangs in the balance of your yes to Jesus. See, Nehemiah seemed unlikely, the unlikely candidate to be the answer. He was a cupbearer to the king, and if you know anything about um, cupbearers back in that time, he was a taste tester. I would love to be a taste tester. If any of you are chefs, um, please find me. I would love to taste test, but I would never love to be this kind of taste tester because he was tasting every drink or, or article of food uh, that 
made sure that there was no poison to poison the king. Now, who would love that job? Mom, dad, I wanna be a taste sister. I wanna be a cupbearer. You know, I bet you the benefits are really good in that one. But that was his job, and he wasn't a, he wasn't a carpenter. He was a cupbearer. He didn't know how to rebuild walls. He was the cupbearer, but he could no longer stick around and be a bartender. He had to be a builder. And some of us in this room, we're CEOs, not cement layers. We're teachers, not trench diggers. We're artists. We're small business owners. We're lawyers. We're doctors. We're, you can fill in the blank of your occupation. And you feel like you're not adequate enough to get on the wall, to build a wall, to get involved into a generation's life or to get involved into a neighbor's life or to go further in your, your walk in service with God. Do you feel inadequate? I do. Extremely inadequate. But here's the answer to inadequacy. Faithfulness. Just be faithful. Do what you can, and God will do what you can't. You do what you can as a parent. You pray as hard as you can as a parent, and God will do what you can't. You do what you can as a teacher, and God will do what you can't. You do what you can as a person who is an example. If you don't know what to do, be an example in what you say, the way you live, your love, your faith, and your purity. Just do that, and God will do what you can't. Faithfulness and obedience. Obedience is our job, the outcome is his. The burden keeps you going when everyone else gives up. And it's kind of like that. It's kind of like a, a soul tattoo where it says, if I don't show up, who is then? If I don't do this, then who is going to do that? And burdenless leaders can quickly become burnt out leaders. Burdenless parents can quickly become tired and burnt out parents. Burdenless students can quickly become burnt out students. Pray that God would break your heart and give you a burden. Those who were living in Jerusalem, they grew used to the brokenness and the destruction. They would see it every day as they walked by. They would see the gates that were burnt. They would see the walls that were destroyed. And it just became a common thing they saw. For wherever you live, at all of our campuses, I know Greenville has an amazing park and, and Mount Pleasant has some amazing bridges and, and just some sceneries and... <laughs> There's a bridge broken here in Mount Pleasant that has caused traffic to be unreal. Um, there's a prettier bridge though, right? There's still a prettier bridge. There's sceneries wherever you live in your context that when a new person steps into your city, they go, oh, that's so beautiful. And we go, yeah, I see it every day, right? We got used to, we get used to some of the things we see. And it wasn't long before the younger generation who was watching the adults in that generation got disillusioned with God. So my question is, what have we grown used to today? What have we grown used to watching, to surfing on the internet, to speaking our language? What have we gotten used to saying? What have we gotten used to seeing? What have we gotten used to when we walk through the malls and our town centers where we see a group of students or we see someone struggling, or we, we walk past on the streets in the city, and we see brokenness, what have we gotten used to? I remember when, I, when our family went to New York, and we took our two oldest, and our son was a little younger at the time, and we would walk by, and there were so many homeless who were on the streets, and my son was so broken. Every time we would walk by, and he would just stop, and he would stare, and he just, just kept looking, and, and it, it was just in this, his face said it all. It's just, 
Why isn't anybody helping? Broken. We've gotten used to. And one of Satan's most effective tools is normalizing sin. Getting used to sin. Redefining sin. Listen, Jesus died for the sin of redefining sin. That's one of his most effective tools. And sin is always a lie. Always a lie. So if that sin breaks the father heart of God, why would we think it would fulfill ours? If we know that sin breaks the heart of God, why do we think that it would fulfill our heart? It would fulfill our life. What you allow to name you will claim you. And there's a generation right now, and this isn't just for students, this is for us. Listen, every message I put together, it's me preaching to myself and I'm hoping someone would grasp something from it. So I'm hoping there's something for all of us this morning to take away and live out. This is for me. And I work with a generation that naming right now is massive. Questioning who they are and confused about what to do and, and, and who they are and I'm, I'm a mistake or I'm worthless, I'm useless. No one wants me, I'm stupid. I had a teacher in third grade, now granted, um, a bunch of friends and I, they had BBs and we walked with the BBs and they, we, we said, let's throw it at our teacher. Third grade, third grade. So I was one of the ones caught in that joke, three, two, one, go, and everyone else went. And I went, boom. And I saw the BB. I saw it, it was like glowing, and it went, hit the teacher, it was David and Goliath. I straight up slung the giant down, slung him down, and I saw him, he went, and he went down. I'm like, oh, I ran into the bathroom. I hit him, I hit him, I hit him, I hit him. He made me stay after, and this is like, they don't do this today in, in school. He made me stay after, and he grabbed me by the collar, threw me up against the wall, and said, you will never amount to anything. Listen, there are still days in my life where that hits me, where I'm afraid. I'm afraid to do something because I might not amount, it might not, it might not work out. And I hear that teacher's voice. I painted a house for a friend when I was in middle school, uh, the guy in our neighborhood, and I said, you want me to scrape the house? You want me to scrape it? He's like, no, no, you're good, you're good. Oh, none of the house, it was the, a shed. And so I painted it, thinking it was good, you know, and I scraped a little bit of things, and it was a messed up shed. And he got, I got done and he belittled me, said, I'm not paying you for that. And so I've got these voices that haunt me, right? And all of us, you can, you can put your story in that where what we allow to name us will claim us. But here's the thing. Those names of culture and those names of the enemy were never whispered by the name of Jesus. Jesus never whispered those names over you. For he said, you are a masterpiece. You're not mass produced. You are a masterpiece. What I say you are and who I say you are, that's who you are. Not who culture defines you, who I define you and the word of God defines you. And Nehemiah knew that God wasn't finished. He knew that God wasn't finished with that city. And God's not finished with this church. And God's not finished with you. And God's not finished with your family. And God's not finished with your kid. Even though your children may be, or your child may be walking away from God, God's not finished with your child. He's not finished. Faithfulness and obedience is our part. And so they faced opposition. Have you ever faced opposition before? Right? I mean, we've, this is life. We face opposition. And I love Nehemiah's 
um, response to the opposition they were facing. It's this, he prayed first, and then there was preventative measures taken. But I love this prayer, the, the raw emotions of Nehemiah. He said, Nehemiah prayed, oh, listen to us, dear God. We're so despised, boomerang their ridicule on their heads. Have their enemies cart them off as war trophies to a land of no return, to no man's land. Don't forgive their iniquity. Don't wipe away their sin. They've insulted the builders. And you know what? I'm gonna add this. Give them a year's worth of diarrhea. <laughs> That's Nehemiah's prayer. Like, hey, beat them down, God. I'm done with them. Boomerang everything back on them. Not like bless them, keep them, may your face shine upon them. No, he was like, he was working out his attitude with Jesus. But here's the thing. Prayer guards your heart from cynicism and your mouth from criticism. So instead of Nehemiah going to somebody else and saying, complaining, 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 being critical and being cynical, he went straight to Jesus. They were halfway down the wall and something shifted in the morale of the people. Attitudes began to change, they were getting tired. Sandballot, who was one of the officials who had the most to lose with this wall being finished, started making threats, speaking rumors, fear and discouragement. It hit the people and it looked like the work wasn't going to get finished. And so Nehemiah made a strategic leadership decision. This is one of my favorite, favorite things and I'm hoping there's some, some, some notes you can grasp from this. This is what it says in Nehemiah. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by what? You can say it. There it is with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. Nehemiah organizes the community by families and he puts parents in the gaps of the walls to fight for their families. Weapon in one hand, tool in the other protecting the city, protecting their families. And I hope you grasp this, families. What Nehemiah did was he championed the parent. He championed the parent. What a great leader he was. Instead of him being the champion, instead of him spotlighting himself, he stepped out of the spotlight and he spotlighted the parent. Just like in, just like in church, here's the deal. We can't make your child love Jesus but we can arrange the date. We can create the environment for them to fall in love with God. And if there's believing families in this house, the responsibility is your responsibility to raise your kids, to disciple your kids. And if there are unbelieving families and, and kids who don't have spiritual, who don't have parents who believe, then it's our job as a church to step in as spiritual families and spiritual parents to raise them to understand who God is and his love. And what Nehemiah did was he understood that, he knew that, and he championed those parents. And for years, the spiritual influence of the parent was non-existent. The, the kids never saw mom or dad defending or fighting, or, or they never really saw what was happening. They just grew used to the destruction in the city. And then Nehemiah turned it in that instance. And here's the thing, no matter your past, no matter if you feel like you're an incomplete parent, no matter if you feel like you're an incomplete person, all of that can change in one moment. All of that can be changed right now and you can start over. And that's what happened. Nehemiah puts these families in these gaps and they start over, he champions the parent and now kids are seeing mom and dad fighting with, with sword in hand and tool in the next and they're defending and they're, the, the pictures are being changed. What once was lazy is now they're, they're, they're doing something together. 
What once was getting used to, they're now saying, we're making a difference, we're gonna make a change. And when the enemy saw that, the attack stopped, they didn't attack. And it doesn't say that in Nehemiah, why it stopped, but I believe that when, when you see moms and dads and when you see small group leaders and you see the church standing in the gap on behalf of a generation, fighting for a generation, that's a battle you don't wanna go up against. That's a fight you don't wanna fight against. Have you ever seen uh, a mama bear protect her cub? Or have you ever seen a mom in the house defend her child, right? Are you with me? Are you with me on that one, moms? Even if the child is wrong, you still defend that child? You step up like, hold up. Time out for a second. You're messing with my child? Listen, I'll put my Lee press on nails and I will cut you five different ways. <laughs> right? We defend, we protect. When you see that kind of defense, when a church rises up and protects their kids and their spiritual kids, you don't wanna go up against that. And I know we get this, I know we get it, but it seems like we always default back. It's not about what we build. It's not about the business we build or what we build or the buildings we build, it's about who we build, who we are building. And when Sanballat and his homies heard, or the rest of the enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, and that there were no more breaks in it even though I hadn't yet installed the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent this message, come and meet with us at Kephram in the Valley of Ono. Nehemiah knew that it was a trick, it was a distraction. The enemy wants to distract us. They were trying to distract him. And so Nehemiah said, oh no, to, to oh no. He said, no, no. <laughs> no, no, oh no. Listen, when someone has like ran into the house and said, oh no, or you heard someone say, oh no, has anything ever good happened when you heard oh no? Anything? My kids, oh no. It's gonna cost me. Every time you hear, oh no, it's gonna cost you. And it has cost me so much. Anyway, um, there was strong resolve in Nehemiah that he was not going to be distracted. Decide to decide. Make a pre-decision decision right now, Seacoast, that we will not be distracted. We will not go to the valley of Ono. And when Ono's happened, we say no, no. You're gonna remember that now when you read Nehemiah. That's just one, you're welcome. And if you settle it ahead of time, you will do the right thing at the time. And there is a story of a shipping captain who would, his route was from California to Columbia, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Some drug lords heard about this captain and they were trying to get him to smuggle drugs into California, into the States. And they would begin to offer him money, 50,000, 150,000, 200,000. He kept declining, 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 declining. Finally, he reports and he does a sting operation with the FBI. And the FBI say, why now? Like he offered you an exorbitant amount of money and it was getting extremely high. Why are you doing this now? And the captain said this, they were getting dangerously close to my number. We need to decide to decide now before we, have, before we right in that moment, we have to have that decision made. You need to make that decision. Oh no, 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 oh no. And this is, this is the, the guiding statement, the vision statement I wanna give you. It's found in Nehemiah chapter six. I wanna give you this statement for your life, for your family. This is your true north statement. Whenever you feel opposition, whenever you feel like giving up, this is your true north. He said, I knew they were scheming to hurt me, so I sent messengers back with this. I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. That's the statement I wanna leave with you. I'm doing a great work. 
I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work in my family. I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work getting out of debt. I cannot come down. Listen, hell has an assignment attached to your life. Hell has an assignment, a heat-seeking missile attached to your life, and this is it. Kill you or kill your influence. Destroy you or distract you. If the enemy can't destroy, he'll distract. John 10.10 says this, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And on the screen and on your notes, and this is the one that everyone yelled at me after the services that they didn't have enough time to fill out these notes, says this, the enemy wants to steal your worship for you to worship other things, wants to steal your worship, wants to kill your identity, and wants to destroy the image of God in your life. Steal your worship, kill your identity, and destroy the image of God in your life. But I love the end part of John 10.10. 10. It says, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I have come so that your kids may have life and have it to the full. I, may, I have come so that in your brokenness, you can find life and have it to the full. I'm doing a great work, I can't come down. I can't come down to your level. I can't come down to compromise. I can't come down to caring about what others think, what you think. I can't come down. Every lie, every accusation, every temptation, I can't come down. So don't settle for the good things. We've gotta settle for God things. Nehemiah 10, 39 says this, we will not neglect the house of our God. And if I could speak to the parent for a second, is do not neglect keeping your kids in the house of God. Don't settle for good things, settle for the God things. Don't neglect the house of God where they will learn. That's where I learned, that's where I was raised. I was raised at the altar where God does alterations. I was, I was taught how to pray by my parents, watching them seek God, watching them kneel at the altar and pour out their life and pour out their heart. I, 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 was learned, I learned how to hear God's voice from my father who had an amazing job with the State Board of Agriculture in Kansas and quit it and left it all to become a pastor. I learned how to hear that voice. Listen, I had a drug problem when I was a kid. I was drugged to church all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Someone went, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> when your kids go to bed, or if you don't have kids, or you do have kids, declare this over them. Declare this over your house. Declare this over your future family. Declare this over yourselves that I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. I can't get distracted. When you're trying to get out of debt, declare this. When you're tempted to put work first and over your family, declare this. When a family member is far from God, declare this. If you're single, don't get distracted from God's plan in your life. Allow God to shape your character while you're waiting. Protect and guard your purity. Declare this over your life. I wanna show you a real quick video clip of why it's important to stay on the wall. I didn't have a typical childhood in New York. I've been on my own since I was seven years old. Where I grew up at, it's like a lot of drugs and stuff like that, and of course, guns. My mom wasn't always there to like guide me to the right path, as you know, a real mother's supposed to do. And I didn't have a father figure in my life. I had five siblings, and you like, seven or even 10 years old at a young age and your mom's not really putting food on the table like that. You know, you do certain things that you don't want to do, but you got to do it because you're trying to feed family.
came to Charleston on a bus, I ran away from home. I was 15 years old with 40 bucks inside of my pocket. I lived with my 45-year-old cousin. He was an alcoholic. It was even rough living with him because sooner or later we got kicked out the house. I met Coach T at church when there was no food in my cousin's house. I used to go to the Dream Center and stuff like that to get food. He was driving in the car one time in his car. We started talking and, you know, he was sitting there talking to me about how I got down here. And I started telling him and he, he understood my situation. And he was like, if you need a place to stay, I'll take you in. And I was like, really? And then he was like, yes. And I was like, okay. You could just say God answered my prayers because I was like, I want to live with Coach T because I feel like he'll be a better fit for me. When I first came down here, I didn't know what love was. I didn't know what family was. I didn't know any of that. So when I started living with Coach T, everything changed. It was like he was showing me the way of being a man, you know? If it wasn't for him pushing me as a person, I could, the best person I can be, none of this would be happening right now. And I told Coach T I was going to take his spot in being a pastor. Don't tell him I said that. My life had to find who I am today. When I have kids, you know, I want to make sure, like, they're good. Like, they ain't, they ain't never got one for nothing, you know. I want them to be able to, like, go to school without getting picked on or, you know, I just want them to be able to come home and actually have food there and they won't be scrawny like I was. I feel like I'm going to be a great person when I get older and I feel like God got a lot in store for me just being around people I'm around. You know, at first I thought I was going to be six feet under, but turned around I'm not. So grateful for that. So good. I love you, Day Day. Pastor T, you are my hero. Presence changes perspective. Listen, Day Day is college bound. He was one of the top basketball players in this state. And, uh, because someone ran into his mess, stepped into his mess. See, my life, my life wasn't changed from a sermon like this. I don't even remember half the sermons I listened to, and you probably will forget this by tomorrow, and all you'll say is a dude wore ripped jeans trying to look like students, right? That's probably what you'll remember. Awesome, thanks. But my life was changed when my youth leaders, not my youth pastor, because I had four different youth pastors in six years of my time as a student, but when my youth leaders stepped into my mess and showed me Jesus. I still get birthday cards, I'm 41, still get birthday cards today. No money, but I get it, I get it. Presence changes perspective. You got a tag when you walked in this morning. I'd love for you to grab that tag at every, every campus. Who has a red tag? Can you show me your red tag? Who has a yellow tag? Can you show me? Your yellow tag. Who has a green one? World War II, triage was the system that was used to color code and tag the wounded soldiers, indicating the degree of medical assistance they needed. Red meant that there was no hope, it was hopeless. So I'm sorry, those of you who have a red tag, there's nothing I could do. <laughs> if you have an issue with that, Pastor Josh would love to answer that question at the end of service. It's no longer in my hands. The yellow tag meant that there was a chance of survival, but medical assistance needed to be quick. And the green tag meant 
that it was gonna be, you know, it was gonna be okay. No medical assistance, they are gonna survive. And on, on this particular day, there was a doctor and a nurse who were racing through the triage center and the doctor was saying red and he was yelling out colors, red, yellow, green, green, red, red, yellow, and she's stapling as fast as she can. And if you can picture the chaos and she's stapling that and as she's done, she's walking through to make sure no one was missed and a soldier grabs her and he whispers, I don't wanna die. I don't wanna die, I've got family back home, my wife just had a child, I don't wanna die. And she was so stricken with compassion, almost like Nehemiah, the brokenness began to, to just attach to her heart. And she was so broken that as she gazed down and looked at his blooded, torn up uniform, soldier's uniform, there was a red tag stapled to his uniform. And so she quickly, she took a risk, but she quickly ripped the tag off, stapled the yellow one, <clears throat> and kept going through. Years go by, the war is over, and a decorated soldier general comes walking into this hospital, now in their civilian life and their civilian jobs, comes walking into this hospital, and he demands to see the doctor or the nurse that created this system, used this system, and assess the damage and assess the wounds of the soldiers. What gives you a right to label them red? What gives you a right to label them and he began to describe the, the, the situation and describe the soldier and describe the wound and it was silent. And he began to get more insistent and more demanding and, and I need to know, who is the doctor who assessed this particular soldier's issue? And finally the doctor spoke up and said, sir, that was my call. There's nothing we could do. I'm sorry, there's nothing we could do. And the general said, well, if there was nothing you could do, why is this man still alive? And the doctor's like, I think we've got our signals crossed, mixed up. I know that there was nothing we could do. We, I, I'm the one who said red, I remember that. And still, the, the general was, you're wrong. And the nurse with her head hung low, spoke up and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, sir, that was me. I took compassion on this man and I, I changed his tag. And the general grabbed her by the shoulders and he said, ma'am, do not apologize to me. For that was my son that you saved. He is now a father. He is able to watch his kids grow. So do not apologize to me. Thank you. And that's a picture of life, church. That is a picture of life where we are called to change people's tags. We're called to, to walk into the mess of a generation and switch their tag from red to yellow or green, to switch their tag, to run into the mess. And I see this picture that is on the screen as a beautiful picture of how Jesus ran into our story, ran into our mess and changed our direction and changed our lives and changed our tag. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're sitting at one of our campuses this morning and you've labeled yourself broken, Worthless, failure, whatever label you may have attached to you or whatever situation may have labeled you, I want you to know this morning, your tag can be changed. All you need to do is cry out to Jesus, reach out to Jesus and say, change it, God. Change my heart, oh God. Change it. We were rescued to be rescuers. We need to take risks to rescue a generation. And so the question I asked you when I started was, what is the faith of this generation worth? And here is my answer, everything. 
And the picture you're gonna see, and as I close, is a picture of one of our one nights where we shared this message, I shared a message, and then really was trying to teach the altar to the students versus just a place of entertainment. This is a place where you find salvation. This is a place where you find freedom. This is a place where you can get alone with God and away from distractions, and this is a place where you can worship. This is the place where at the altar, God does alterations. And I didn't think a student would respond because there's times where we've had those calls and it's like crickets, right? Even as parents, you're like, hey, how was your day? Eh. One by one, students began to come down to the altar and drop to their knees, not prompted by me. And this picture has seared my heart of why I'm on this wall, of why I'm in the trench of student ministry. And that's my answer, everything. Would you stand in the gap by opening your home for small groups to meet in? Would you stand in the gap by leading a small group and investing into a group of students? Would you stand in the gap by getting involved with this generation? I have one tangible way that we as a church can stand in the gap, and it's, it's our summer camp. Every year we have needs. And if uh, this isn't a, a plea by any, any means, if you, for those who are interested, I'm speaking to you. Last year, you gave over $60,000 for scholarships and every one of those dollars went to a scholarship. That meant we had $60,000 worth of need in our church to get kids to camp. This year, we have 61 students who are on a waiting list. We've already awarded 132 scholarships. We have 61 on a waiting list. So we're waiting for more scholarship funds to come in to send them. That's $15,000 worth of need. $5, $10, 20, whatever will help a student get to camp. If you feel like this is a way you can jump on the wall for a generation to experience life in Christ, I'd love to just challenge you to, to help us get that student there. That's all I have having that. But I wanna pray for us. Thank you for... Um, being with us this morning, and I wanna pray. Father, I love you, and I thank you that you stepped into my mess, and you rescued me. I wanna thank you that you stepped into the many lives who are represented online, who are represented in, in, our, in our campuses, and are represented here in Mount Pleasant, that you stepped into our mess, and you rescued us. And my prayer for us this morning, God, is that we would have this be an anthem over our lives, over our marriages, over our families, that I am doing a great work. I can't come down. I can't stop and I won't stop. I will not allow distractions to pull me away from the very call of God on my life. And I pray that over this church in Jesus' name. In your name I pray, amen.